You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another, not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so there's a restaurant down the street called Yasuyani. If you want good Greek Mediterranean food, that's the place to go. Pretty convinced if Jesus lived in Stockton, that's where you'd eat. And so here's the deal about Yasuyani. Every time I go there, there's a group of judges that sit in the same corner of the building, just from the courthouse down the street. And so a friend, a friend and I uh, went to eat lunch there recently, and the host says, hey, sit wherever you want. And I peek around the corner, and the corner's empty. I had forgot that the judges sit there. So we go and we sit down in the corner, and about five, ten minutes later, this group of judges come in, and there is just a clear disdain for us on their face. It was like as if they were used to getting their way or something. And so we're sitting there, and they're sitting in the section next to us, and Literally, they're like looking over their shoulder, saying things, you know, to themselves. I can only just imagine the, the words that are going on there. This is our seat. This is our corner. 
And so here's the, here's the funny thing. As, as much as we were sitting in their chair, there was nothing that they could do about it because we hadn't broken the law <laughs> at that moment. Um, so <laughs> now imagine if this was taking place in a very different context, say down the street in the courthouse. And say I walked up into uh, one of the courtrooms there on the many floors of the courthouse and I sat down in one of their chairs there on the bench. And I have to imagine that it would be a a very different situation with very different consequences. Why? Because not anyone can sit on the bench. Only the rightful judge can sit on the bench. And I would have to be one arrogant fool to stroll up to the bench and make myself judge. And yet, sadly, spiritually speaking, in some way or another, we have all done this. C.S. Lewis coined a phrase, God in the dock. God in the dock. In the dock is an old judicial way of saying on trial or a defendant. God is on trial. God as the defendant. This is what Lewis writes. He says, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He, speaking of modern man, is the judge, and God is in the dock. He's quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war and poverty and disease, he's ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. Who knows? But the important thing is that man is on the bench, and God is in the dock. See, the nature of sin is us placing ourselves where only God belongs, on the bench, determining that we are qualified to be in charge, determining that we are qualified to call the shots, to determine what is right and wrong for ourselves, to determine who is right and wrong in this world, that we are wise and capable enough to judge the world, to judge ourselves, and even judge God himself. And this is really what's highlighted for us here in Mark 14. We are in a courtroom. Now it's late at night. Uh, Process and procedure has been thrown out the window. This is what you would call today a kangaroo court. They've drawn everyone that would uh, wake up and get out of bed to the courtroom right now. And the interesting thing is really the irony is this, that the judge himself, the ones that the scriptures describe as judging the living and the dead, is now standing accused and condemned. Man is on the bench, and the very Son of God is in the dock. And so as we look at this passage, there's a few things to note about this kangaroo court scene. The first of which is this, that Jesus stands alone. Jesus stands alone. Now, the the last scene that we had before this passage that we're looking at this morning was Jesus' arrest and his disciples fleeing. In fact, it ends with a very, very pathetic picture of a young follower of Jesus, many believe to be Mark himself, running away naked and afraid. And that's the scene that we have leading up to the point that we're looking at today. Perhaps if the disciples had learned to stay awake with Jesus during his trial in the Garden of Gethsemane, They would know how to stand with Jesus in his trial before the Sanhedrin. But as Mark records, they are all gone. 
They're all gone. Now, as Jesus is being led to the high priest, we get this little glimmer of hope that he's not totally alone. It says that Peter's back. Peter's back. He's there on the stage. Maybe he's here to redeem himself. Maybe he realizes that he's made a lapse of judgment in fleeing from Jesus, and he's back to stand with Jesus as his boy, as his friend. But we're soon let down again. Verse 54, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, there's something about that line, from a distance or at a distance, and warming himself, concerned with self. Friend, you are capable of being in proximity to Jesus and yet being a million miles away in your heart. Now, Mark, our narrator, is setting up the the scene, and as he's setting up the scene for us, he's actually setting up two trials. I don't know if you caught that or not. We're reading about two trials happening simultaneously. The one that Jesus will uh, face in the courtroom and the one that Peter will face in the courtyard. And now we're about to find out how Peter does and, uh, in his trial in the, in the courtyard and really how far he has gotten from Jesus. But the point is this now, that Jesus stands alone. During the hour of need, when the fate of the entire world is hanging in the balance, it's Christ alone. Betrayed by Judas, forsaken by the ten, now publicly and harshly renounced by one of his closest friends, Peter, Jesus stands alone. But consider this. Isn't this the point? Isn't this the point? See, Mark is showing us something. that Earlier we read in Mark that Jesus sent out his apostles and his disciples with the power and the authority of the kingdom of God to preach the gospel, to cast out demons, to heal in the name of Jesus. But what Jesus has to do now, he has to do all by himself. No one else can give their life as a ransom for many. No one else can satisfy the demands of a holy God. No one else can pay the penalty of our sin. No one else can usher in new birth to a dead and dying humanity. It's Jesus alone. And this is important because our faith doesn't rest in that failure named Peter. And our faith doesn't rest in the disciples that flee. And our faith doesn't rest in the religious community that's condemning Jesus. And our faith doesn't rest in us. And our faith doesn't rest in our faith. And our faith doesn't rest in our abilities. And our faith doesn't rest in humanity or science or politics. God help us. Our faith rests in the one who stands alone. In honor of Reformation Day this last week, one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation was solo Christus, or solus Christus, which means through Christ alone. Through Christ alone. There is one way to God. There is one mediator between us and God. There is salvation found in one and only one This Jesus who stands alone. See, Jesus came to this earth to identify with us, to be, in a sense, one with us, to identify with our hurts 
and our pains and even our temptation. But here, in this distinct moment, we see Jesus' set-apartness. When everyone else fails and falls away, Jesus stood Christ alone. You see, this is not just a theological concept, as powerful as this thought is, but this is actually something very personal for us, a very personal application. What this tells us, what this shows us, is that Jesus knows what it feels like to be abandoned. Jesus knows what it feels like to stand alone. Jesus stood alone on this cold and bitter and lonely night, separated from God, separated from his closest friends, so that he could stand with us in our hour of need. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the personal application of this truth in 2 Timothy. He says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me, And strengthen me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Everyone was gone. Jesus stood with me. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus stands alone on this night so he can stand with you. Second thing to note about this passage is that Jesus stays silent. Jesus stays silent. See, in the midst of all these false accusations coming from all, uh, you know, these many different directions, this is a very chaotic scene. The high priest stands up, he silences the crowd, and he says, listen, what say you? Do you have anything to say for yourself? Who do you claim to be? This was at the center of this trial. It wasn't what Jesus had done. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't the feeding of the 5,000. It was who Jesus claimed to be. Now, Jesus is going to affirm his identity here before the Sanhedrin in a very explicit way like he has yet to do elsewhere in the book of Mark. And this happens in multiple ways. One is this happens through what he says in verse 62. He essentially says, I am. I am. And what he's affirming is that Jesus is the victorious Messiah, the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, the Son of Man that comes with the power and glory of heaven. I am he. But he first affirms his identity, and listen to this. He first affirms his identity by what he doesn't say. Look at me in verse 61. But he remained silent and made no answer. In the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God, the king speaks through his silence. Now, what do I mean by that? What what do I mean that, that Jesus is saying something in his silence? Well, I believe that Mark is making a connection here for us, the reader. Jesus is the Son of Man, the king who reigns in glory over the nations, But like Isaiah prophesied of hundreds of years before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, he is first the suffering servant, the crucified king who establishes his reign through sacrifice. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah speaks of Jesus to come hundreds of years before the scene here in Mark. 
Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. So if you're trying to figure out who you are in the story, there it is. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus remains silent. And so this means something. This means that Jesus could have spoken up and defended himself, but he doesn't. He could have called down angels to rescue him, but he doesn't. Why? Because this is why he came, and this is who he is. And in his silence, what he's doing is he's affirming his identity to his people. I am the victorious king who in love suffers for my people. In Jesus' silence, he's speaking that I suffer for you. Again, this isn't just just merely a theoretical, theological concept. This is a very personal truth for us. See, we understand that God speaks through his word. And I think for most of us, we understand that today he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit. But we can't neglect what we see Jesus doing here. And it's this, Jesus speaks in his silence. He's communicating who he is to you. Let me illustrate this. There's a book in the Old Testament called Job. And it follows the story of an individual named Job who suffers the loss of almost everything in his life. He loses his children, his house, his livelihood, uh, his own health. Severe loss. And so his three friends get word of what has happened to him, and they come to him. Now, full disclosure, a majority of the book of Job is really these three friends getting it totally wrong and adding insult to injury and giving Job very bad advice about who he is and how God interacts with humanity. But where Job's three friends get it right is at the very beginning of the story, and we read this. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they didn't recognize him. They raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. They come, they sit, and they're silent. Jesus, why don't you say something to me? Why aren't you speaking? I'm listening I'm doing everything I can do in my life to position myself to hear you. I'm trying to silence out all the voices. I'm trying to get away from all the noise. And and I, I really, truly am listening. Why can't I hear you? Why aren't you speaking? Friend, he is. Isn't this the point? 
He is. For the child of God that is trusted in Christ, his silence is not a sign of his absence. For the child of God, and it can't be. For the child of God, his silence is not a sign of his indifference towards you. He's off just you know, doing more important things in the universe. His silence at times may be him saying something that words just can't. And here it is. I'm with you. I'm with you. And there is nothing that can separate my love from you. And I not only stand with you in your loneliness, but I sit silently with you, in, with you in your suffering because I know what it's like to suffer. And I know what it's like to suffer to the point where even words can't express it. I'm here. And I'm here with you. And I'm sitting in your mess with you. Jesus speaks in the silence. The third thing we, we see in this passage is that Jesus suffers condemnation. Jesus suffers condemnation. Now, shortly after Michelle and I got married, we moved into this old house that had no sprinkler system whatsoever. And so in the afternoons, I would go after, you know, after work, I'd go outside with the hose in my hand and just water the lawn. And it was calming. It was totally mindless lawn watering. And it was, it was calming. And so one day, one afternoon, I'm out there just watering the lawn, and I hear arguing, this really, really loud arguing from my neighbors, which unfortunately wasn't very uncommon. And so the argument comes outside, and they're yelling at each other outside this couple, and I hear the doors in their uh, pickup truck slam, and the, he truck starts the truck, and he peels out of his driveway, and he turns the corner in front of my house, and the house that we lived in was a corner lot, an outside corner lot. So I sort of had the full angle as I'm out there uh, watering my lawn. And they come, they approach the stop sign in front of my house and they just blow through it. And it just like in slow motion, I can still remember this scene in my mind. The passenger side door flings open like a scene out of a movie. The woman does just this like barrel roll out. It's hard to tell if she jumped or he pushed her. It was a combination of both, but she's barrel rolling out of the truck and he's turning the corner, and he's heading down the street, and I turn down, and I see way down at the end of the street two police cruisers. And they flip on their lights. And so he just screeches to a halt, puts it in reverse. Great idea. Tries to outrun them in reverse. So comes in reverse right in front of my house, turns the corner, almost hits the curb, almost hits my truck in front of the house, realizes that running from the cops in reverse is probably not a good idea, gets out of the car, they approach, they slam him up against the hood, she's bawling, and I'm just sitting there watering my lawn like, what just happened? And so soon enough, one of the officers comes over and is like, hey, I'm going to need a statement from you. So I was like, oh, this is kind of a dilemma. Because where I come from, snitches get stitches. But... I care about this, this like lady getting justice. So in my super wise mind, I come up with a solution. I say, can I give my statement anonymously? And he says, of course. Two weeks later, I get a call from the DA on my personal cell phone. How I got my number, I have no idea. 
He says, hey, I need you to come testify against your neighbor on so-and-so date. And I was like, oh, come on, man. And so, he's, I, so I tell him, because I know my neighbor's out on bail and he's next door. And I'm like, you're going to make me come testify against the guy I have to like drive home and see tomorrow? And so as just in this eerie, calm voice, he says, well, you got two options the way I look at it. He says, one is you can show up on your court date. Or two, I'll send a cruiser to pick you up. So I was like, all right, sold. I'll see you there. <laughs> the story's getting somewhere, I promise. So um, the, the court date comes, you know, like I, try, I like try to wear a tie, walk into the hallway, and there he is, my neighbor. I'm like not making eye contact because he knows why I'm there, and I know why I'm there. And so they bring me up to the stand to testify. I swear in, and one of the officials, the f- uh, first question they asked me is, can you, can you point to so-and-so and identify so-and-so? And I'm like, are you kidding me right now? So with, with what felt like an 800-pound arm, I was like, oh. And point at my neighbor, the defendant. And sitting there on the stand that day, I realized the full gravity, the full gravity of pointing the finger. And I understood in that moment the weight of condemnation and the weight and the gravity behind the statement, he did it. See, as Jesus stood on trial here, he received the condemning fingers of the religious community. In just a matter of hours, he's going re- to receive the condemning fingers of the Roman Empire. That day, I had to identify who I saw committing a particular crime who was going to face the law for that crime. But on this night in Jerusalem, Jesus is preparing to suffer an even greater condemnation. The finger of the religious community, the finger of the Roman Empire, the finger of the crowd saying, crucify him, he deserves death. And even heaven's sentence is going to come down on him in a moment, in just a moment of, uh, in just a series of hours as Jesus is on the cross. Every finger is pointed at Jesus at this very moment. Everyone is throwing the books at Jesus at this very moment. The question I have as I'm studying this passage is why does Mark spend so much time on the arrest and the trials of Jesus? In just the next chapter, he's going to say in one verse, and they crucified him. He sums up the entire crucifixion process with one verse, and yet he spends an entire chapter focused on this trial. Why? And I believe the answer is because what we see here is the heart of the gospel of Jesus itself. That despite the fact that Jesus had done no wrong, and Mark even records this, they couldn't find anything wrong with this testimony. He still willingly stood in the place of the condemned. This right here is the heart of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus takes our place that God switches places. That the righteous one will be judged. The righteous one, rather, that the scriptures describe as judging the nations and judging the, the living and the dead, first places himself on trial to be judged for the unrighteous in our place. See, as I mentioned earlier, sin is us switching places with God, but salvation is God switching places with us. Suffering condemnation for us. Suffering condemnation instead of us. 
saying, let me take the rap so that they can receive the acquittal. Listen to how the Apostle Paul would describe this in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What Paul does is fast forwards through, does a, pushes fast forward through this whole judicial process and tells us the whole story that the son of God who was on the bench willingly became God in the dock. That he was tried, he was condemned, he was executed, but the father raised his son up on the third day, vindicating him. And now this Jesus Christ stands as our defender, as our defense, as the voice of the crowd and the accuser of the brethren testify against us. He's guilty. She's guilty. Look what he's done. Look what she's done. We're reminded that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who daily bears his scars and reminds the hosts of heaven, I paid the penalty already. And for them to be judged and condemned would be double jeopardy. I was condemned so that they would be freed. Christ the condemned stands in our defense. Amen? We've got to look at this final scene here with Peter, and then we'll be done. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and, and, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. The question I want us to consider as we conclude today is, is this, what does the Son of God in the dock produce in us? What is this scene to produce in us? And the first thing is this, it's to produce mourning. A heartfelt, gut-level grief over the way that we have wronged God and one another. Deep confession. Deep remorse. 
In fact, the HCSB translates it like this. When he thought about it, he began to weep. When he began to recall all these things, the only thing he could do is just weep. See, earlier in chapter 14, Peter was convinced that he would die for Jesus, but he was not yet convinced that he needed Jesus to die for him. But it's now. It, it just, this is the moment that it clicks. As he hears the rooster alarming him and reminding him of his denial and what Jesus said as he hears the sounds of the men mocking Jesus and spitting him and beating him. Conviction of the Spirit meets him at the moment of his rock bottom. Sometimes that the moment of conviction will meet us at that moment of rock bottom where we just Dorothy Sayers once said this, none of us feels the true love of God till we realize how wicked we are. But you can't teach people that. They have to learn it by experience. And I know some of us have been through the ringer. And I know some of us have been really learning at the school of hard knocks. You can't teach someone that. You got to learn it by experience. Peter's learning it by experience. And it's in light of the immeasurable love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he begins to realize just how wicked he is. And it's in light of his wickedness that he begins to realize just how loving and faithful Jesus is to him. And that circle begins to grow. And revelation leads to revelation, which leads to revelation, which leads to weeping. What does the Son of God in the dock produce in us? It produces tears. Secondly, and finally, it produces mercy. There's a theme that runs throughout the entire New Testament, and it's not complicated. It's this, that those who receive mercy must show mercy. If you've received mercy from Jesus Christ, the only logical, spiritual response is to be a merciful person. Listen to how the Apostle Paul would write to the Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. He reminds the church just how much they've been forgiven, and he says, in light of this, you must also forgive others. There's a lesser-known work of William Shakespeare, called Measure for Measure. And within this story, there's a strict judge named Angelo who has condemned another individual named Claudio to death for the crime of getting a woman pregnant. And it's a very severe punishment. And so Claudio's sister, Isabella, comes to the judge and pleads for the life of her brother. She comes to appeal before him for him to be spared. And so Angela, the judge, says to her, okay, what's your request? And Isabella says, I have a brother who's condemned to death, but I plead with you, condemn his crime and not him. Condemn what he's done, but not him, the criminal. And the judge responds, condemn the crime and not the person. That doesn't make sense. That, that doesn't make sense at all. If, if, if If I condemned the crime and not the criminal, then my my role would be meaningless. 
And so she leaves and she comes back with another appeal. And this is her appeal. She says, please show mercy. I have nothing to say, just please, just show pity. And the judge says, I do show pity when I show justice. I'm showing pity on those who have been affected by the crimes. She leaves again. But she comes back a third time with her most powerful appeal. She says, alas, alas, all the souls on earth were doomed once upon a time. And God could have seized the opportunity to condemn us. Instead, he found the remedy. Speaking of what we see here in Jesus. And she asks the judge, she says, what would happen to you if he who is the highest judge of all were to judge you as you deserve now? Let me ask you, judge, what if God gave you everything that you deserve? And she says this, oh, think on that. And mercy will then breathe within your lips like a man made new. Ponder the mercy of God and mercy will begin to ooze from your life. And I believe that this is the call for us today. Think on this. Peter thinks about it and he weeps. The fictional judge is called to think upon the mercy of God in order to be merciful. That's, that's the call for us to think upon this scene, to think upon Jesus' trial, to think about this Jesus who stands alone, who stays silent, who suffers condemnation in our place. And as we do, we'll begin to mourn our sins we'll, and we'll begin to discover the healing and transforming power of repentance and confession. And through those eyes of tenderness, and through those eyes of tears, we'll begin to see the people around us quite differently. Through eyes of tears, we'll begin to see people in light of the mercy that's been shown to us. And the only fitting response that we will find in that moment is to extend mercy to others in the powerful name of our risen Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...